0: Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another week of Reform This at the Blaze.com podcast network. Thank you for joining me. This is the place if you're looking for an American Muslim who believes that radical Islam, political Islam, theocratic Islam is a problem that is a Muslim problem that needs a Muslim solution, you have come to the right place. If you're tired of hearing apologetics, if you're trying to find that breach, to breach that divide between the theocratic Islamic world and the West, the land of liberty, this is the place to look for it. Every week together we find those issues that need to be looked at a little deeper. And this week is no different. I wanna talk to you about a little bit about Ramadan, our month of fasting. Talk to you about the red-green axis. You need to understand what that is. This is a little seminar, if you will, on the red-green axis. It's becoming more and more relevant every day. And talk to you about that radical school in Philadelphia. You may have heard about that video with young kids singing about chopping off heads. Yes, in Philadelphia, PA. First, to my Muslim friends and supporters and followers and listeners, this week started Ramadan, the ninth month of the calendar, the lunar calendar of the Muslim community. Like the Jewish community, we use a lunar calendar. Our year is 355, not 365 days. So... The holiday month moves up um, about 10 days every year. Last year it began uh, at approximately May 15th. This year it started around May 5th and 6th. It started on Monday. And as we begin the observance of this holy month, it's 30 days of fasting, of atonement, of spiritual reconnection with God. For all those who are physically and mentally able, we're to abstain from food and drink from dawn until sunset. And you know, fasting, as all the major faiths do, be it the Lentian fast, the Yom Kippur fast, the fast is not one of sorrow but of thankfulness. Ramadan reminds us to give thanks for our blessings while keeping the suffering in our prayers and doing what we can to help them. Every Ramadan, I'm always reminded of the sanctity and safety of this great nation, which we call home, which we're blessed to have. I I always tell, I've said this many times, I think on this program, my greatest blessing was when my mother and father decided to escape Syria and come to the United States and then I was born soon thereafter. I could have been born in Syria, I could have grown up in that country that now has been devastated by a genocide, a civil war, and 50 years of horrific tyranny of half is in Bashar Assad. So, as we do every year, we reaffirm our commitment to advocate for all those persecuted on the basis of their faith or their choice to reject religion, those suffering from gender, honor abuse, honor violence. We use this time to remember those who do not have good representation and who need our prayers. We remain committed to ending the suffering And we remember that the things we are each dedicated to. Me, as you know, I'm dedicated to defeating political Islam, to fighting the root causes of radical Islam, which I believe is political theocratic Islam. And that's what I'll continue to do, to grow and steal that resolve. So thank you. And to my Muslim brothers and sisters, enjoy the month. Hopefully it'll make you stronger. And... um Get closer to your families, remember what we we saw another shooting this this week in Colorado, and remember that every day that appears normal could change the following day Now, I'm also reminded we've talked a lot about you know when we talk about reform, I've always said, what are we for right are, are we for liberty are we for freedom? can be easy it's easy to be against violence to be against terrorism to be against theocracy yeah but what are you for how do we replace those angers those eruptions with something that will keep us whole as human beings well as we talk about the new popular flavor of the day As we talk about the new popular flavor of the day, we're reminded that, be it Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, be it Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, that they have a relationship, as we see openly, that the Islamists have a relationship with AOC. That's not a spontaneous thing that happened. It's been a a long, long time relationship of the red-green axis. What is the red-green axis? And if you don't know what that is, I think you're in trouble as far as you're in trouble as far as understanding why the Islamists rise the way they do domestically when they're a minority or even when they're a majority. They right on the back of the other major tyrannical collectivists, which are the communists and socialists and the national socialists. So I know this all too well, having lived in Syria, I haven't lived in Syria, my family having lived in Syria and escaped the tyranny of the Ba'athist party, right? The Ba'athists, Ba'ath, I think in Arabic means liberation, but the bottom line, it's the National Socialist Party of Syria. So if you look on the spectrum, it's far left, tyranny, tyrannical left. And their socialism is complete government control of the economy. And yet when they get into power, they start embracing religious collectivism. They hire imams and work with Islamist groups. Hafez, Assad, and Bashar fueled Hamas, fueled the Muslim Brotherhood, fueled Khomeinists and the Islamic Revolution, and they reciprocate. And their family, being Alawi, was out of the Shia tradition, so it became easier for them to even get closer to the Khomeinists after the Islamic Revolution of 79, and it really took until 73 until Hafez... Alawites were actually normalized as supposedly Shia, even though they're quite heterodox in their understanding as far as the Alawite sect goes. But bottom line is, is politically, the Ba'athists were national socialists. They were far-left extreme tyrants. Fast forward to Ilhan Omar, runs for office under the guise of being a part of the Democratic Socialist Party of Minnesota. And then, five, six days ago, in a speech, comes to tears talking about Angela Davis, her hero, her heroine, because she embodied everything that she aspires to be. And Angela Davis is an avowed radical communist whose ideas come out of Lenin, who has vocally and verbally talked about the fact that her hero is Vladimir Lenin. She is a Marxist-Leninist. And then you see the synergy with the Black Panther Party and and, uh, the Leninists and Communists and Marxists. So many Islamists, let's look intellectually. Sayyid Qutb, the founding father intellectually of the writings of the basis of the 20th century movement of political Islam that then trained the likes of Hassan al-Banna who read his material, learned from it, and became a more operative type of activist community organizer of the Islamist variety. And they learned from the Leninists that if you want to spread your ideas quickly, you have to be ready to die for them and you have to be ready to seize control of government and seize control of the central power system. And that's exactly what they did or tried to do and what they try to do over and over. So there's a synergy. There's a cooperation that you see domestically in many countries between Islamist movements that get their start and the, the, as the snowball begins to roll down the hill, it gains initially within the mosques and within the Islamist movements like the Muslim American Society, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, Islamic Society of North America, Islamic Circle of North America. These are all Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups that sprouted in America, and they start rolling down the hill and gaining gaining size, and then they find their co-followers. And the co-followers are not always Muslims. They are other socialist and far-leftist communists. Includes progressivists, the Bernie Sanders, because they are also collectivists. They also seek through demagoguery, To confuse the populace into thinking that they will bring them things that are better and that they will feed them and give them jobs and that the free markets and capitalism is heinous and godless. It's the same message. The socialists have the same message as the Islamists. And sure enough, the only difference between the Islamists and the communists, while... Islamist like Ilhan Omar will openly talk about her greatest heroine being Angela Davis and Lenin yet their world view for Islamists is Islamist is a caliphate is Islamic states is a belief that where Muslims are majority they should have Islamic rule so often where there's significant populations of Muslims, the Islamists, when they actually get to seizing power, or the communists get to seizing power, there is significant conflict. We see in China, the Islamists are 15, 20 million, small number compared to the billion Chinese, so they're deprogramming and putting Muslims in concentration camps. Russia, similarly. But when it's vogue in the the West... The Islamists don't want to bother themselves with the history of Lenin and what he felt about Muslims or what he felt about any religious minority or religious freedom. That doesn't matter to them. It's about collectivism, it's about the oxygen of socialism. And that's what Ba'athism did. So, red green axis, the axis of cooperation in its infancy, of movements that are populist from the ground up, of socialists on the left and Islamists. That don't fit in the American left-right construct, but are simply theocrats with socialist mindsets. Jump back over to the Middle East and you see that the NDP, National Democratic Party of Egypt, which was Sadat Mubarak. Jamal Abdel Nasser was the founding father of that in the 50s and 60s. And that's a national socialist party the bath of syria and iraq that birthed the assads and the husseins saddam hussein national socialist party now saddam put the green flag of iraq with a passage from the quran as he wanted to get the islamists to feel that this was their government so They use, as Marx taught, religion as the opium of the masses. And that's the red-green axis, right? The left uses the religion as the opium. The Islamists use the socialism to control economics and collectivism. And then when they finally get to the end, they will fight. But together, they control. We see this control not only within countries, as I said, in Syria, Iraq, and elsewhere. We see it at the U.N., Where the Maduros and the Chinese and Russias of the world work together hand in hand with the Irans, the Khomeinists, the Assads, the radical Islamist regimes and the tyrants of the Arab world. They work together. And they vote together, which thus makes the UN attack the only secular democracy in the Middle East. Israel, attack the West, attack America. And that's where much of the pathological focus on things out of proportion to the actual crimes against humanity done in Syria, Iran, Venezuela, or elsewhere are ignored. So the red-green axis, we see it in, in the U.N., those countries top down have been working together against the west against countries based on liberty and freedom against nato now come back to ilhan omar and you see a member of congress that has a world view that essentially is just anti-american she claims to be pro-american I can't believe her district is not just ashamed and embarrassed to no end that this is their member of Congress. Every comment, every tweet she makes is an embarrassment. She raises money for organizations that are like the Muslim American Society, CARE, and others that are radical Islamist organizations. And she does so proudly. She pushes canards of anti-Semitism, and the left is afraid to push back. Against her anti-Semitism, because they're afraid of her social media platform, they're afraid of the progressivists that are working with her, and that red-green axis. Ladies and gentlemen, understand the red-green axis. It evolved in Europe over the last 20, 30 years. There was a guy running one of the lead icons in Europe for the Muslim Brotherhood was Tarek Ramadan. And Tariq Ramadan became sort of a spokesperson that even ended up debating the likes of Sarkozy in France and had a position of professorship at Oxford and then also spoke on radical television networks like Press TV for Iran. Had a position in Sweden and elsewhere. His brother was Syed Ramadan. He's the grandson of Hassan al-Banna, the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood. So this guy was sort of a a forked-tongue dissimulator who wrote books on reform, talked about modernization of Islam, but basically was bringing forth an Islamism, Political Islam 3.0. He wasn't doing any reform significantly. He wasn't separating mosque and state. He was apologizing for the Islamists. He was working with Qardawi, Sheikh Qardawi in Qatar, the lead spiritual guide for the Islamist movement. Now, the socialists had worked with him in Europe for decades. And then in, the, in 2004 or 5, I can't remember which year, the European Socialist Party posts on their webpage 40 reasons why we sh- do, will not work with Tara Ramadan and why no one on the left should work with Tara Ramadan. And they go on about his treatment of women, his understanding of religious law. His duplicity, which the likes of Carolyn Forrest, an investigative reporter that wrote a book called Brother Tariq, had talked about for years. So, I tell you that as an example that finally down the road, the left will get it. We saw last week a video released that was posted on Facebook by some parents of kids, young Palestinian kids, at a school affiliated with the Muslim American Society. Singing about Jerusalem belonging to Islam and to Muslims and not to the Jews, so the the basis of the song was a deep anti-Semitic end of times canard, and that canard was then highlighted with kids talking about chopping the heads of their enemies and getting a, saw, a sword to cut the heads in a, in a figurative kind of way, choreographed. Video was pa- placed on Facebook and made public. Memory released it. Investigative projects on terrorism and others began to do stories about it. And then the school says they, in an interview with the Philadelphia Inquirer, embarrassed itself by allowing them to push a absurd talking point that this was not vetted, this was an oversight, and they added that it was just rented to these, the MAS had nothing to do with it, it was rented to that school, <laughs> which... which as the investigative project terrorism talks about later in a, in a story the next day that they lied. It had this, the, the school has the same board of directors up for the most part as the Muslim American society, that this co-mingling is done across the country with MAS chapters that partner with mosques, that partner with schools and share spaces as a result, but the boards are the same. So it was a complete lie and deception. These people are, are dishonest thugs And you see the video, and it's not just about kids coming up with choreography. Parents are watching and applauding. And then it was posted on social media. This is an endemic ideology that is not a one-off. It is an ideology that is seen throughout these schools, that is beyond, bigger than simply this phraseology about cutting of heads. It is an anti-Western, anti-Semitic Islamism, that's a supremacism that teaches militancy and teaches jihad. And by the way, where did Ilhan Omar cut her teeth? Working with and for and about the Muslim American Society in Minnesota. Google it. Take a look at her interactions with that school, with that organization. And then, which school in Minnesota? Oh, Tiza, T-I-Z-A, the Tariq Ibn Ziyad Academy. The Tariq Ibn Ziyad Academy was sued by the ACLU back in 7 or 8 about violating state law because they were forcing, coercing kids to pray. They're five times a day. And then, in addition to other aspects of theology that were being forced in instruction, and this was a charter school, so they got charter tax subsidies. Well, Tisa lost, had to pay penalties, and ultimately shut down. And again, that was an MAS school. The story went basically under, significantly underreported, and is emblematic. Of the MAS. MAS is often affiliated with schools because, as the Chicago Tribune reported in their four-part series, The Secretive Muslim Brotherhood in America. And that was the title of their four-part series. And ultimately it was about the Muslim American society and their branches in Chicago at Bridgeview Mosque and and how they raise money for Hamas and how closely they were connected and are connected to the Muslim Brotherhood groups in the United States and, and globally. And their programs are mirror images of what's done in Egypt with Tarbiya programs. Tarbiya in Arabic means indoctrination, or actually more correctly, it means raising kids, educating kids. And that's the same language that's done in their curricula here in the United States. So again, this is relevant to the discussion of the Red-Green Axis because these organizations are how Ilhan Omar cut her teeth and became what she is. And then it was a hop, skip, and a jump that now she works closely with progressivists and was asked to take over for Congressman Keith Ellison, who now is the Attorney General of Minnesota. I mean, come on. How can they not hold her accountable for those ideas? And how can they not be exposed for the radicalism that they are? Understand the red-green axis, ladies ladies and gentlemen. Understand that this is a synergy that needs to be fought, needs to be exposed. And we need to figure out a counter. The counter is to work with Muslims that are pro-freedom, pro-liberty. We saw this week Omar Suleiman opened was asked by Speaker Pelosi through Congresswoman EBJ, Eddie Bernice Johnson, out of uh, Texas, was asked to give the invocation. Why is it that we keep finding radical imams to give invocations at the House? Remember, the first Muslim to do that Was in 1991, Siraj Wahaj, the guy who I talk about in my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, who talked about making the U.S. an Islamic state, change the constitution from this man-made constitution, as he said at Isna, to a God-given constitution of the Qur'an as he couched that in his anti-abortion language. So, if you agree with his anti-abortion language, then you must therefore agree with making the U.S. Constitution into the Quran. And he said it was our obligation to do so. And that's the guy who Congress asked in 1991 through Abraham Alamudi, Abdurrahman Alamudi, who, by the way, now is still serving 25 years in prison for agreeing to help assassinate the king of Saudi Arabia and also taking $300,000 in a bag of cash from Gaddafi in Libya. That was the first imam ever, the first Muslim. This is our legacy, ladies and gentlemen, as American Muslims, is the first imam to do so is Siraj Raj, who, by the way, then had a son and grandkids that were part of this New Mexico compound last year that was, raided and was a terrorist training camp, apparently, for radicalizing kids. Yep, and he claimed, possibly true, that he helped the FBI then find them, but the tree that he planted for his family sprouted and had apples that fell not too far from it that did this separatist camp that was training young kids in jihad. We haven't heard much about that story, have we? It was discussed initially quite significantly, but then it went off the radar. So, you know, the as we look at the um, not only the red green axis, which I think you really. Constantly remember that as you look at how these relationships are made. Understand the cooperation between the Islamists and the communists and socialists in America and globally, constantly. This guy, Omar Suleyman, who gave the sermon, was invited by Eddie Bernice Johnson, a congresswoman from Texas. He's from her district. He's helped raise tons of money for The Muslim American Society speaks for them frequently, has been part of cheerleading for the the very anti-Semitic, anti-Israel BDS movement, boycott, divest, sanctions movement. He has also uh, uh, said things that uh, I'm not going to belabor with you right now in the interest of time, but just take a look. He's not only constantly shows a a pathological hate of Israel, uh, but uh, has also said things that are misogynistic in sermons, uh, uh, anti-gay, um, and anti-American claims that Americans are committing war crimes wherever we fight wars. Nothing about keeping him free, nothing positive about our military, you know. And this is the guy representing Muslims this week, this week at the House, asked by Speaker Pelosi to give the sermon, the invocation What a tradition, what a legacy we have. I mean, is this, that's fine. I I think it's great that we have a Muslim opening the House of Congress, rather, the House, coming to order. But is this the representation of the American Muslim community, or are these the Islamist establishment? I've talked to you many times about how the Islamist establishment does not represent American Muslims, that they are compromised and that they are a, a very focused, circumscribed movement that leaves to waste the rest of the Muslim community, that are secular, liberal, intellectual, libertarian, democratic. All these things, we reject political Islam, which I believe is a plurality, or at least a majority of Muslims. And yet, the Islamist establishment that's had 50 years of synergy, of cooperation with the left and with foreign governments from Qatar to Iran to Saudi Arabia ends up being the representatives of American Muslims. And I'm sorry, I disagree with every position Suleiman has had. He is a classic Islamist. And we really can't find just plain old spiritual imams, a or Sufi or, or other just Core spiritual humble imams. No, we have to find a political Muslim Brotherhood type Islamist operative like Omar Suleiman to give the invocation at the house. It's an embarrassment. You know, I take it personally also because I was a doctor at Congress. My last bill in the U.S. Navy was as a physician to the members of Congress in the House and the Senate and the Supreme Court. So I understand the culture. The I knew the chaplain well. Now there's a different chaplain there, Patrick Conroy. Did he really vet this guy? I doubt it. Congresswoman EBJ did. Not exactly the sharpest knife in the shed. People that would approve him to represent Muslims. Last, we had a painting... That was covered up in London at the Saatchi Art Gallery that I think again talks about what happens to anyone that decides to just sort of push the envelope. Because our limits of our freedom of speech are not guided by those people that are reasonable, humble, polite, and appropriate, but really by the people who are at the periphery of offense. Now, should you be able to do things that are profane and, and, and complete nudity? No, there needs to be some limits, but those are things all people of all faiths can agree on. But this guy had a painting that was of the, I believe, the American flag with what appeared to be a, a naked lady and then scripture from the Quran across. And they said, they interviewed Muslims who said this was blasphemous. It should not be allowed. And they immediately covered it up. And yet when they had a cross in urine, when they had other aspects, and you see a picture of the painting and to it's a picture of Lenin, by the way, which sort of brings us full circle, doesn't it, to the red-green axis. But they covered it up quickly. And all I wanted to end on today is to say to my Muslim brothers and sisters in this month of Ramadan, if we belong to a faith in which some people show that they're offended by certain things that are said or done. And the response of our non-Muslim brothers and sisters is to then quickly acquiesce because they're afraid of our faith and are afraid of us. Or if they're not afraid, they need to muster enough bravery and courage to stand up to us. That is not a faith that I would want to belong to. Any faith that cannot withstand anything just brushed on a canvas... It's not a faith that deserves the respect of a global religion. Do you really believe the God of Abraham needs or is afraid of things and words written on canvas? Or that we can't somehow maintain the integrity of our community without laws prohibiting speech? Because it's going to be sort of like a virus that spreads and that you're told. Even... So-called moderate institutes like Zaytuna Institute talks about apostasy as, oh, apostasy is okay as long as you apostate privately, not publicly. It's public apostasy that's the problem. Private apostasy is not. (laughs) I'm going to throw up. Seriously? Apostates want to talk about it. That's what they do. Religion is about some missionary work and also some failures. When you fail your missionary work, people are going to go around saying you're crazy that your faith is nuts. What's wrong? They can do that. That's part of freedom. You can reject God publicly because people cannot accept the religion of whatever choice they are without knowing they have a freedom to do so. So, Satchi Art Gallery, you failed. Covering up SKU artworks after complaints by Muslims, you failed. Our freedom is less than it was. Remember what happened in Paris. We're cartoonists, journalists, we're mowed down, we're were shot up. Charlie Hebdo. That is a version of Islam that we need to defeat. That is militants that need to be defeated. And we defeat it by continuing to be ourselves, to be free and be liberal and not to acquiesce and not to weaken. We must stay who we are. We must be proud of it. And Muslims have to be at the head of that spirit to defend freedom. And that's why I'm here. And that's why I hope you're here. Is to help me defend freedom week to week on Reform This. Please tune in. Please share. Subscribe on SoundCloud, on iTunes. Find us at TheBlaze.com backslash podcast. Tell your friends about us on social media at Facebook. Find me at MZJasser. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D R Z U H D I J A S S E R, or at Reform This Radio on Twitter, and we'll see you next week. And fellow Muslims, have a good Ramadan. Hope your fasting prayers are listened to and heard. This is Zudi Jasser. Reform this. <laughs> Reform this with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.